Hidden Thread, a podcast about food and domestic history. I'm Liz. And I'm Hazel. We are two friends who studied archaeology together and love history and making things that are from history. And we like to start the episode by talking about things we've been making and or baking recently. So what have you been up to? Tragedy has befallen me. Oh gosh. I got RSI in my elbow, so I had to take some time off from crafting. Oh, my commiserations. That's horrible. It was right after I bought some really cool sock yarn as well. No, that is... There's a new craft shop near my parents' house, and they have this sock yarn that's like full-on like 80s neon. So I've, I've basically, I've turned the heel, and now it's just kind of sitting there mocking me. Oh, that is, that is a crafter's worst nightmare. I'm sorry. So I'm I'm sat here with like kinesiology tape on my elbow, like I'm a wrestler or something. And it's just like, no, I need to too much. <laughs> just tell people you tell people you are a wrestler. They can't prove I'm not. Exactly. Not if you have like a secret wrestling alter ego. I mean, I I know the location of a nearby amateur wrestling thing, so I could probably like stole them for a bit <laughs> Nick's just messaged in the discord bread and threat <laughs> which I enjoy yeah that's it that's my wrestling name um, we do have a, we do have brewing news though the honey beer is, is ready for bottling ooh have you tried it yet no it, not yet because it, it still needs to age for a little bit. Oh, okay. But it smells really good. Ah, oh, I'm imagining the smell is good. It's, it's not got the barley in it. It's just, it's basically hoppy mead. Okay. Oh, interesting. So it's got this really, like, light, um, almost kind of floral smell to it. Mm-hmm. That's, that's... But still definitely a beer smell. Yeah, I'm imagining that, like, would be a really interesting taste, like, with the the sweet, like, mead flavour and the kind of sour hoppiness. Mmm. It'll, it'll be a good summer beer, I think. And once yeah. it's aged, it will be, like, mid-April, so. That sounds refreshing. Okay, so. What I'm gonna, gonna come try that this summer, hopefully. Yeah. Um, yes, um. Come and try the beer. <laughs> I have been on a bit of a knitting kit. Um, I finished my crochet butterfly. It's adorable. I'll put a picture of it on the uh, Twitter. Very, it's very really cute. cute. You it's put a picture in the Patreon Discord. It's adorable. Yeah. <laughs> it's got um a chrysalis that goes with it and um an egg as well so it's like the whole life cycle very cute it's got like little eyes and oh <laughs> yeah so that was fun um <laughs> and i might have started a lateral because you know i need that along with everything else i'm trying to get done 
The thing with other knitting projects is they're too easy. I know, like you, you need a sort of easy, mindless comfort project that you can do while watching TV. And you need like a medium one. And then you need the hard project for when you want to be totally absorbed in something. Exactly. This is the categories. Um, <laughs> yeah. But it was yarn I already had and was like, I tried to make a thing and it didn't work out. So I put it away for a year, as you do. And I'm making a different thing. And it is working out very nicely so far. And that's fun, but it's cobweb weight. And it's the first time I've used yarn that thin. I know you're familiar with cobweb. Yeah, my my wedding ring shawl was, I mean, it has to be cobweb weight. So yeah. It's very <laughs> delicate. I it is. I wish you luck. <laughs> Thank you. I've had a couple of problems with it snapping already, but I think that's because I used one of those um, yarn winders that you like, um, Um, or what's the word for when you like? I'm doing the motion with my arm now. You know when you like, like manually. Sorry, like balling. Yeah, when when you you crank something. That's the word. <laughs> the <laughs> ones that you like turn the crank and it. Yeah. So it turns out that that is a bit much for cobweb weight yarn, and it got a bit tangled and like. Oh, too much tension. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So, but I think I've got past the bad bit. So it's going to be smooth sailing from now on it's just it just took a while to get used to the delicateness i guess um but yeah super fun exciting uh, yeah also a good spring project yes definitely so speaking of spring oh <laughs> i'm going to talk about a spring vegetable but one that is generally regarded as a fruit. Which is rhubarb. Ah, I've never thought of it as a fruit. I guess I, t I thought of it as a fruit because like what I know of it is all sweet, sweet yeah, items. Like pies and crumbles and pouring custard over it. Yeah. But it's actually a vegetable. Um, but yeah, like all, all the recipes I know are for sweet dishes. Um, mm -hmm. Although, as I'll talk about later on, um, it has been used for quite a long time in the Middle East um, in savoury dishes as well. Um, that makes sense because there's a lot more like sweet savoury crossover in the Middle East, isn't there? Yeah, a lot more use of like sour flavours and things. So it, rhubarb is actually a much more interesting vegetable than at first glance. Um, it's got it's got a lot of different uses. You can use it um, medicine, food, dye. Um, so yeah, that's actually the the beginning of our story of rhubarb. Uh, is its use as medicine? Okay. So yeah. Um, It's classification. Um, it's the room family. And there's quite a few different varieties. There's room rhubarbarum, um, raponticum, like a few different ones um, of culinary rhubarb. And then there's like different 
different varieties that are ornamental. Um, and ornamental rhubarb. You can get ornamental rhubarbs, yeah. <laughs> We're gonna need a picture of that on the Twitter. I'll try. I'll try and find one. Yeah. Um, the the foliage is magnificent. So rhubarb seems to originate from um, kind of colder areas of Asia. Uh, so it's listed in a Chinese herbal compendium. Um, the okay, so my my terrible pronunciation, um, but it's the Shenong Pen Sao Ching. Uh, the or Shenong's Herbal Classics, which is a, an ancient Chinese book of medicinal plants and their uses and how to grow them, um, which is generally dated to around 200 BC at the earliest. Um, it's possibly listed in an earlier herbal compendium uh, which is dated at the earliest to 2700 BC. Um, wow. Yeah, but that one's a, li a little bit difficult to attribute because it's like it, the dating is disputed. Um, but we definitely know about it from at least um, to 200 BC. And it was used in Chinese, traditional Chinese medicine um, to regulate the gut. So it could be used as a remedy, like for for gut problems and constipation. Okay, I have heard of rhubarb being like it, it keeps you regular kind of thing. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah. I think it's the phrase that the old people use. <laughs> yeah, so that was its traditional use, and it was actually used for medicine in in the West as well for that purpose. Um, it was a big import along the Silk Road from China. Um. <laughs> But it is actually quite good for you, rhubarb. Uh, it's got a lot of vitamin K, a lot of calcium. Oh, nice. Yeah, it's apparently it's classed as a superfood. And it's the um, the bit that's eaten, the red, the red part, is actually the leaf stem. So you don't, the roots have been used in, in medicine. Uh, the leaves are poisonous. You cannot eat them. Good to know. Apparently Thomas Jefferson like recommended them as very good like cooked like spinach, but I'm I mean, kind we know of... he didn't have the best judgment. <laughs> kind of skeptical about that one, yeah. <laughs> um, but back back to the ancient world. Um, <laughs> so it was uh, imported um, by so by about the tenth century it had become. Um, very popular as a medicine it was imported along the silk road um and coming into the middle east and to europe um apparently in medieval europe it was more expensive than a lot of the spices like nutmeg and pepper um because it yeah it was it was highly valued and came from a long way away that there are also reports of it being native to like Siberia um, and growing along the Volga River as well. And the word rhubarb, the name rhubarb, um, comes to us from early French, which came from, like a lot of things, Greek. 
mm-hmm. um, from the Greek rhubarbaron, which is like the the word barbarian. Basically, it means like foreign foreign rhubarb, foreign plant, because foreign plant. You know, foreign foreign plant. One foreign plant. <laughs> Because, of course, according to the Greeks, anyone who didn't speak Greek was a barbarian. Mm-hmm. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, it's literally <laughs> barbarian plant. <laughs> That's Which, beautiful. I know. <laughs> Makes it sound a lot more fearsome than it is, I think. Hordes <laughs> of marauding rhubarb. <laughs> In fact, that actually ties into something that I'll mention a bit later on. I've got a beautiful, a beautiful picture for you to use as the teaser for this episode. Okay. You're going to love it. (laughs) So are all of you guys listening when you get to see it. (laughs) Okay, so apparently um, in the, the word for rhubarb in Chinese translates to the great yellow as well. Uh, which is really interesting because it is also used in dyeing to produce yellow um, in in that sort of region as well. Uh, so, yeah, according to uh, an embassy in the fifteenth early fifteenth century to Samarkand, um, talking about the merchandise being imported from China, uh, apparently the best of it included. Silks, satins, musk, rubies, diamonds, pearls, and rhubarb. So there you go. It was a pretty, pretty highly prized item. So it also has a bit of a history in the Middle East, in the Islamic Middle East, um, as well as Persia. And it actually features in a Zoroastrian creation story uh, that comes from from some Zoroastrian texts. Um, it's a fantastic story. Um, so basically, in its basic form, um, rhubarb is responsible for the first human couple. Um, so like kind of how this... No! Actually, not this time. I didn't okay. find anything about rhubarb being an aphrodisiac, for once. <laughs> that must be the one long plant that, that isn't an aphrodisiac. <laughs> Maybe so. I mean, I suppose, like, a plant that's known for making you regular isn't that aphrodisiac sounding, really. On the other hand, if you're bloated, you're just not <laughs> going to be in the mood. True, true. <laughs> I guess you can make anything sound like an aphrodisiac. So, the story goes like this. Um, the, the pre-human, as it were, um, who's called Gaiamat, and again, terrible pronunciation, um, dies as a result of the, the sort of evil figure Araman. And as he dies, he falls onto his left side and he emits a fluid. 
and the sun's rays gradually purify that fluid. Okay. <laughs> and um, it is cared for by two deities. And after 40 years, a rhubarb plant grows from the substance. And growing from that rhubarb plant is the first human couple, Mashia and Mashiana, who are then animated into human beings. So they're like a, a rhubarb fruit? I guess. That was... Um... Yeah. Sure. <laughs> that was that was a fun one um, that I found. Like as creation myths go, I think I quite enjoy that one. Oh yeah, like is is a is a great a great addition to. I did I didn't know this one before, um, but yeah, is is a lot of fun. Um, so yeah, apart from that, um, it was also used as a medicine. Um, in the Middle East and Persia, but it also has been used in cuisine, as we mentioned earlier. So in the West, it's kind of unheard of for rhubarb to be used in savoury dishes, um, but in Persian cuisine, they use a lot more like sour flavours. Um, so since the Middle Ages, um, we know that it's been used. and. I found one recipe which sounds absolutely delicious, and I think I'm going to have to try it out. Um, so it's called Koresh Rivas, and it's a lamb, herb, and rhubarb stew. Oh. So it's with uh, lamb or beef and mint, parsley, rhubarb, and onion. Um, yeah, it's, it sounds absolutely delicious. Apparently, um, in similar stews, they would use sort of dried lime or something else sour to give that sour taste. But if you put rhubarb in, you don't need to use any of that. The rhubarb will provide that like tanginess, um, without anything else. That's cool. I've had a similar thing with pomegranate, which Ooh. I think is a fairly similar flavour profile. So I can see that working well. Mm. Oh, that sounds good. But yeah, I, I read this and my stomach immediately started rumbling. So <laughs> I might I might have to give that a try. So it was being used in savory dishes specifically for its sour flavour. Um, but in Britain, while it was being used for its medicinal purposes, no one really wanted to eat it because like, we, we don't like sour flavours as much. And rhubarb on its own is extremely sour. So we normally add sugar to it. Um, and so it kind of follows that we started eating it kind of in Northern Europe when sugar became a bit more available in the late 18th, early 19th century. Uh, due to colonialism, of course. Yep. So many things hinge on that. It's a sugar episode. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, go, go back to that one if you want to know more about that. Uh, so it was, it started to be grown 
in both Europe and America in the 18th century. Um, and several sort of culinary varieties were developed. The first recipe, the first known recipe, including rhubarb in Britain, is from 1806. And it's in a book called A New System of Domestic Cookery by Maria Eliza Rundle. And it's for a rhubarb tart, which sounds quite nice. It's like a, a pastry base with rhubarb and covered in a sugar syrup. That sounds very nice, but also that book title is that's so grandiose. I love it. <laughs> I know. I don't know very much about this book by itself, but I'll I'll look into it, see if it's worth doing one of our book episodes on it. So yeah, that sounds quite nice. And and we're starting to get turns out if you put sugar with rhubarb, suddenly it has an amazing flavour. Or at least it does if you want to put it in sweet dishes. Um, so yeah, from there kind of we get what what we know in the West as traditional rhubarb dishes. So like your tarts, your compote, your crumbles. Um, in America, apparently it often gets paired with strawberry, like in strawberry and rhubarb pie. I can see that because strawberries are just ridiculously sweet. So they kind of mellow each other out. Yeah, yeah. Like I can I can see that as a combination, although apparently it is a little bit controversial with rhubarb purists. <laughs> rhubarb purists. <laughs> apparently that is a thing. Um in fact it's definitely a thing. As we will find out when we come to the rhubarb triangle. Oh, oh yes, I'm aware of the rhubarb triangle. <laughs> so the rhubarb triangle is a particular area of Northern Europe in the county of Yorkshire. Um, traditionally between the towns of Wakefield, Leeds and Bradford, um, which loosely forms a triangle. And this, this in the 19th and 20th centuries, um, and like up till, up till now in the UK, really, it's because it's still known for its rhubarb growing. That has been the area where most of the rhubarb in the UK has been produced. That's quite a small area. It is quite a small area. And the reason that the rhubarb triangle <laughs> became such a, a well-known area and the place where the most rhubarb farmers were, were operating is apparently because to grow very well, rhubarb requires a good period of cold. Like it ah, needs a so good... Grow it up north. Yes, that is why. <laughs> <laughs> um, rhubarb was also grown in Scotland as well since the 18th century, um, which probably did quite well there as well. Um, so you need a good six to seven weeks of proper cold for the the kind of tubers to like activate i guess um and then it will grow better so rhubarb production is actually being affected by climate change in the rhubarb triangle because we get milder winters now so it could be a problem for the rhubarb industry um that is why we need to stop global warming 
specifically to save the rhubarb triangle. <laughs> um, it also gets a lot of rain in Yorkshire, which is good for the rhubarb. And apparently the soil is very nitrogen rich. So those, the, those are the reasons that it grows very well in the rhubarb triangle. Apparently that particular area as well is a bit of a frost pocket. So yeah, all those things together. A bit of a what, sorry? A frost pocket. Oh, okay. That makes more sense. What did you think I said? Rust pocket? Oh, okay. <laughs> I guess with a lot of rain, it probably would be that as well. So yeah, that's, that's why the rhubarb triangle uh, is a thing. And the technique of forced rhubarb um, was also developed in Britain. <laughs> I don't know, maybe it shouldn't be. <laughs> we need to develop a procedure to establish rhubarb consent. <laughs> Well, they, they've got spirits to send emails. Why not rhubarb? Just send it a little form to fill in. Yeah, it can just like you know, it can tick, give some verbal, verbal consent. Um, yeah. So this technique, apparently, the story goes, um, it was being grown in the botanic gardens in Chelsea, um, in the late eighteenth century, and accidentally one of the plants was kind of covered in soil as it as it started to grow and when it was discovered they found that the stems from this plant were much sweeter and tenderer than any of the others and so apparently that's how it was discovered uh, that if you force rhubarb so that's if you grow it with very, very little light, then it will be much sweeter. So it's the rhubarb in the dark. Yeah, you do. And when you when you say it like that, it sounds bad. It's so mean. I'm like feeling really sorry for the rhubarb. So my mum actually does that by just like putting a bucket over it in the garden. She's a monster. <laughs> it is terrible. I will tell you, you said that. <laughs> but industrially, they do it. Industrially, they do yeah, it in like a big bucket, big shed, a massive bucket. <laughs> the secret of rhubarb farming. Oh dear. No, they use a big shed. <laughs> what is a shed if not a bucket with a door? I disagree. A bucket is a very different shape. So it has to be kept away from light so much um, that the forced rhubarb is harvested by candlelight. Okay, now it feels kind of sweet and quaint again. <laughs> I know, it's quite a romantic uh, image, isn't it? But apparently it's, it is really hard work doing it like that. Um, and rhubarb grown this way, and from certain varieties as well, is known as champagne rhubarb. Why? Because it's, it's like really, you know, considered the best 
tasting rhubarb. It's really sweet and like, mmm. Uh, in fact, <laughs> the mouthfeel, yeah. Um, so apparently, and um, I can't, as I, don't, I didn't, I didn't write down uh, who this quote is from, um, but there's there's a quote about uh, the champagne rhubarb is or the forced rhubarb is that um, it's, it's sort of known as champagne rhubarb because forced rhubarb is to the rhubarb industry what champagne is to the wine industry. <laughs> I mean, I guess take their word for it. I guess, yeah. <laughs> um, so that's quite early in the year. That's like the more expensive form of rhubarb. And then you get field rhubarb, which is, you know, the present rhubarb. Unforced. <laughs> Unforced, free rhubarb um, <laughs> that is picked later in the year. Uh, in fact, the rhubarb triangle is so so established that there is the annual Wakefield Rhubarb Festival. Adding that to the road trip. Absolutely. Uh, it looks pretty good, not going to lie. Um, and I'm just going to send you this picture uh, from the Guardian article about the rhubarb triangle. Uh, from the Wakefield Rhubarb Festival. And the caption... Terrifying. The caption to this picture is, Stalker, a woman is pursued by a giant stick of rhubarb at the Wakefield Rhubarb Festival 2015. I, I don't like it. It will hurt my dreams. <laughs> so you'll see this on the Twitter, listeners, but just to describe it for you now, it's a person in a giant rhubarb costume <laughs> like not looking a particularly good one no it's not is it standing quite works. menacingly behind this woman who looks like she's not having a good time <laughs> it is it is an image <laughs> that is a true barbarian plant <laughs> the barbarians are coming the rhubarbarians. <laughs> so I mentioned that rhubarb has its uses as a dye as well as a food and a medicine. Uh, and that's actually using the leaves, which, as I said, are poisonous. And that's because they contain a lot of oxalic acid. Which apparently that's what gives the stems their tanginess, but the leaves contain so much of it that they're extremely poisonous. And there have been cases of rhubarb leaf poisoning in the UK. Um, particularly, apparently, of a plant making something as a defense mechanism and humans going, oh, that's yummy. Mmm, <laughs> spicy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, apparently, unfortunately, um, I haven't been able to verify this, but. Apparently during World War One, they were the rhubarb leaves were mistakenly recommended as like a, a source of um, vitamins during rationing. Um, oh. Yeah, and unfortunately that led to a few deaths. Um, so 
This also means that the rhubarb leaf can be used as a natural mordant. So that's a chemical that fixes dye to fibre. So they have been used as that. Um, they also give colour as well. Um, so from the roots of the rhubarb, you'll get sort of oranges and yellows. And then the leaves will dye browns as well. Um, and then you can use it with other dyes as a mordant um, and to augment the colour as well. So it's traditionally been used for this purpose in Tibet and Nepal as a source of yellow dye mm -hmm. um, and to add to indigo dye pots as well or like fermentation pots. It gets around as rhubarb, doesn't it? It does. It definitely does. Uh, for something that I thought was a fairly niche plant, I guess, um, it's actually got so many uses and like has been used for them in so many different places. Uh, it's, yeah, really interesting. And yeah, we've even got our ornamental species. So yeah. I never thought rhubarb was so interesting. <laughs> Definitely. I guess that's because I think in in Britain we kind of associate it with like grandma's crumble. Yeah, I think it's my dad's favourite crumble. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's, I think we see it as quite an old-fashioned fruit. Like, it brings back images of like, um, you know, I think it was promoted in, in World War II as like a, a source of um, nutrients as well. So, yeah, I think it kind of has that, that image. And also, I think it's got a bit of a bad rep because you have to cook it right in order for it to taste good. And, like, school canteens aren't very good at doing that. Oh, yeah. School dinners are just a whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> school dinners um, maybe a picky eater, genuinely. Mm, yeah, I mean, I can imagine. Like, I never liked custard, and they would always try and make me eat the horrible custard in school dinners. Ugh. If you want to hear some of the best variety names absolutely uh gaskin's perpetual early albert hawks champagne reed's early superb and granddad's favorite the these sound like beers that you would find in a pub in discworld <laughs> Do you mean a rhubarb? Maybe I do. Populated exclusively by rhubarbarians. <laughs> oh. I think we've taken this as far as it can go. <laughs> we don't want to force it. That's it. That's the end of the podcast. Thank you, everyone. <laughs> oh, gosh. Apparently... Um, oh, it's running thing on both of the podcasts I do of me just making a pun so bad the other person just decides the, the podcast is over. <laughs> <laughs> it is... About me. 
it is a trait that I both love and hate about you. <laughs> but definitely more love. I do love a pun. Apparently, there is a Finnish rhubarb mead. I was just wondering if you could use it in brewing. So I guess oh, you... that confirms it. Mm -hmm. You can use it, definitely use it in uh, like country wines as well, like fruit wine making. Yeah, I think I've come across like rhubarb gin. Mm, yeah, I think I've seen that too. Which I guess is another like old people association. <laughs> it's quite nice though. Well, it it like... might just be me that has the association between old people and gin, but it's definitely there in my brain. <laughs> yeah, no, it's definitely, I think it's definitely a thing. Um. So yeah, that's that's all I got on rhubarb. I hope you enjoyed it. <laughs> I I very much did. <laughs> um, so where are we going for local larder? We're actually going back to Persia. Ooh, that ties in very well. It does. Um. So it's this is something that has a lot of names. Um, depending on where you are. Okay. Um, but I'm going to be calling it um, Somalak because that seems to be the most common one. Okay. Uh, Somalak is the Uzbek name. It also has different names in Persian, Azerbaijani, uh, Tajik, Kyrgyz, Kazakh, um, probably also other languages. Which is a sweet paste made from germinated wheat, which is often eaten around um, Persian New Year. Oh, sweet. Was 11 days ago as of recording this, so I guess when it goes out a few weeks ago. Oh, right. Wow, I did not know that. So it's a sweet wheat. It is a sweet wheat. Um, it seems to be quite ancient. It's, it's pre-Islamic. Okay. And it's, it's a part of the traditional um, sort of food display for um, Persian New Year. Uh, I believe the name of the the thing is Hafsin. So how do you how do you make wheat taste sweet? Is it like fermented or? Um, yeah. So traditionally, you just use the sprouted wheat grains, and the the sprouting makes it sweeter just because it started to release those sugars oh wow and then yeah so you soak the wheat until it sprouts crush it into a paste add more water um until it starts to like some white stuff comes out i can't find an exact description of what that is <laughs> but i suspect it's starches from reading around it okay um and then you put that in a big pot 
Um, sometimes with stones, um, which I will explain in a second. And then you boil that up, uh, sometimes adding oil or flour, um, which can help thicken it, but apparently adding flour makes it less sweet. Mm. And it just, it comes out as this kind of almost chocolate-coloured sweet paste. Wow. Uh, which is apparently often served with uh, nuts, especially walnuts. Ah, oh, that sounds nice. It does sound really good. Like Nutella, but not. Um, so the, there is a story, because there's always a story for stuff that's this old. Excellent. Um, yeah, there's an Uzbek story that the name uh, Sumalak means 30 angels. Um, because there was a poor mother with two hungry sons. And they got her to put seven stones in a pot. And then wheat and water were added. And it, with a lot of cooking became sumalak, this delicious sweet paste. And apparently, mm. um, yeah, if you eat sumalak from seven different cauldrons during this New Year celebration, it's good luck <laughs> and will increase your chances as a new bride of conceiving that year. Ooh. I like that, just sort of cover cover all the bases. One of them will work. But yeah, um so it's it's one of seven foods, um or at least like edible things that are mm -hmm. arranged in a display for again for Persian New Year. Um, so you get these absolutely beautiful table displays. And I'll I'll try and find a, a public domain picture of one to post. Yes, please. Um, so you get sprouted um, normally grains, but can also be um, lentils. You get this uh, sumalak. Oleaster which is a wild olive variety, mm. vinegar, apples, garlic, and sumac. Ah, oh, yum. Which is a delicious spice. Mm. Oh, yeah. I love sumac. Um, but you can also add other items that... So these all begin with the same letter in the Persian alphabet, um, which makes the S sound. So you also get um, other things that start with that letter sometimes, including okay. uh, coins and sometimes even clocks. Wow. Which just feels appropriate for, for a New Year thing. Yeah, for a New Year celebration. But all, all of these objects have different symbolic meanings as well that I won't go into because that'll be a whole whole extra thing mm -hmm. 
so like with that and also this the mythology around it uh Simulac is is very much like a, a lucky dish to have uh-huh. at new year and i i just think that's interesting yeah that's really cool and there's um there's songs that you sing while you're making it and you can make oh. a wish when you throw in the walnuts oh that's fantastic and it's just this big like um family or sometimes even community activity making amazing. it amazing oh it's like making a wish when you stir the christmas pudding yeah i just think it's really nice yeah that's lovely um so thank you for listening if you want to suggest an episode like um yeah we had a suggestion recently but i'm i'm really sorry i'm not sure how to pronounce your name but thank you for your enjoyment of the podcast and long list of suggestions um you can email breadandthreadpodcast at gmail.com you can also find us on twitter at breadandthread where you can find uh teasers for upcoming episodes uh pictures that we talk about on the podcast we'll put them there um and just general bread and thread food history related news uh we are on youtube as bread and thread as well we have um youtube versions of our audio um and on tumblr that's the one we we reblog things post things uh we do work in progress wednesday is posting pictures of projects and also just sort of chat about food and domestic history related subjects and we also have a patreon bread and thread um where we have a discord server and we have monthly recipes as well we do i don't know what april's one is going to be yet so keep an eye out on that ooh i think that's it so that is it. Thank you for listening. We will see you next time.